1 Corinthians chapter 15. This has been a slow chapter uh, as I've led you through it uh, because uh, it's important, very important to, uh, to know, uh, to believe, and also be able to teach the resurrection. It's, uh, it's, it's fundamental to our salvation. That's why we are Christian. That's why we're here today. We believe in the resurrection. But the more we know and understand about it, the stronger our faith is. And that's always good when we strengthen our faith. Uh, at present, we're, we're considering uh, the resurrection plan, verses 20 to 28. Uh, each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Leviticus 23 and verse 10, uh, you see where the uh, Israelites uh, had to offer up uh, first fruit of their harvests. They would uh, take a sampling of their harvest. They would take it to the priest. Uh, the priest, of course, uh, would uh, receive it and they would keep it. And uh, they would uh, uh, pray uh, for a full harvest, which was to come later. But the first fruit came first, and then later there would be the large crops that would come in. And this is uh, what Paul is saying the resurrection's like. Jesus is the first fruit, and then afterward the harvest will come. We're, of course, the harvest. But we learn from uh, Matthew 27, 51 through 53, that not only was Jesus resurrected after he was resurrected, there were some saints that were resurrected. And uh, the reason for doing that, at least immediate reason for doing that, uh, was to go into the city of Jerusalem and testify to everybody they knew that they had truly been raised from the dead. And uh, this would give people confidence, of course, in the resurrection of Christ. If your mother or father came back, and you, let's say you had buried them nine months earlier, and they walked through the door uh, after you got up off before, uh, your confidence in the resurrection of Christ would be greatly emboldened. So I don't know how many people, no one does, how many were resurrected. I'd say it was a pretty good sampling, though, because the purpose of it was to witness the resurrection of Jesus. And, of course, that would do it. Uh, if Mama could come back from the dead, why would I think it's so uh, hard to believe that Jesus came back to the dead from the dead and raised the people like he said he would? But this is what happened uh, on the day Jesus was resurrected. It was on a Sunday. Uh, he was resurrected as a first fruit, and then this sampling group, came forward uh, to witness that there was a great harvest coming eventually. And we're a part of the great harvest. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, uh, Paul said, We who are alive and remain uh, until Christ comes back shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Denominationalists teach this to be the rapture. That, that's how they apply this verse. If you look at the text, uh, verses 13 through 18, 
you'll see that's not the case. Uh, the, the saints in Thessalonica, they misunderstood the resurrection. Uh, the family became Christian and uh, mama or daddy died. And uh, now the, the mother or the son or daughter, they wept bitterly because they thought their mother or father missed the Christ's return. <laughs> therefore missing uh, the resurrection and eternal life. So Paul wrote this little section in verses 13 through 18 to teach them uh, that just because they died doesn't mean they're going to miss the resurrection. And finally he says, we who are alive and remain, if Jesus comes back today, in other words, we shall be caught up together with them, those who had died, uh, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall be back together again with mama or daddy and uh, be with the Lord uh, forever. They, uh, they haven't missed the resurrection just because they died. They thought only the living would be raised from the dead. They were mistaken, obviously. And in uh, verse 18, he, he told them to comfort one another with these words. Uh, he wanted, and we need to understand that, yeah, we're going to be together again. Uh, that is a wonderful thing that we have. Uh, it's, I think it's one of the greatest hopes we have is the fact that uh, we don't have to say goodbye at death. It's a matter of I'll see you later. And in the resurrection, we'll uh, be reunited. And that's worth more than all the world when you stop and think about it. Any questions or comments before we move? <clears throat> now then uh, comes the end. The resurrection is taking place. Now the end comes. Jesus delivers the kingdom to the Father when uh, he puts an end to all rule, all authority, and all power. There'll be no more authority uh, outside of heaven itself. All and all the authorities, you know, there are a lot of authorities in the world. Uh, the parents have authority over the children. The government has authority over the nation. Uh, the supervisor has authority over the employee. Uh, all this authority will be done away with. Uh, in heaven, everybody is, uh, everybody are saints and uh, in the presence of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Four, Jesus must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. He must reign. Reign over what? Well, obviously, he's reigning over a kingdom. Now, the reason I say that that way is because uh, maybe some who aren't uh, familiar with this. Protestant denominationalism, for the most part, believes in uh, what they call the premillennial reign of Christ. That is, uh, Jesus came into the world originally to uh, establish his kingdom. But much to God's surprise, instead of receiving him, the Jews were angry with him and they had him put to death. So the Lord had to uh, interject uh, plan B. Plan B was to set up what they call the church age. Uh, 
and the church age will continue until Christ comes again, not because it's the end of time, but to begin the millennial reign. He will sit on a throne in Jerusalem. He will reign over the world for the space of a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years, of course, the Lord will come back yet a third time, or he'll be here, so he ain't coming back, but he'll take uh, all the people on to be with him in heaven, with the exception of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that uh, when Christ establishes his millennial kingdom, uh, he will reign uh, over the earth forever, okay? This is where uh, uh, many, many people are going to live. It's a, it's a foolish, absolutely foolish doctrine. Uh, they, they teach that 144,000 are going to be in heaven and the rest uh, are going to live on the planet. Uh, when you think about that, it, it doesn't make any sense because uh, John the Apostle in the book of Revelation uh, in chapter 7 he was, uh, he was given an opportunity to see the saints. He's looking out to the end of time. And he has the opportunity to see the saints who are surrounding the throne of God. Uh, and he said he saw a number which no man could number. How big that number is, I don't know. But according to John the Apostle, no one could count the number of people that he saw in heaven with God the Father. First of all, you've got more than 144,000 seen in heaven. Secondly, if people were going to live on the earth for the space of a thousand years, uh, you would have to stack them maybe two, three, four, five high because the population is larger than what the earth can stand. The Jehovah's Witness doctrine from beginning to end and I'm not trying to be unkind it's it's foolishness uh, the Bible they wrote uh, is a, a foolish foolish book of course they go by the watchtower over the Bible they say you can have eternal life if you live by the watchtower and never even look at a Bible well if you're talking about looking at their Bible that would be true uh, one biblical scholar uh, said that uh, their Bible was uh, an example of how not to translate the Greek Testaments. It's so far off from truth. They, they have so mistranslated the Greek text that it's unbelievable. Uh, their plan is to live here forever, which is not going to happen. Uh, but we know that uh, the saints are going to be raised uh, to be with God uh, forever. Christ must reign. This is uh, the plan of God. You remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter the Apostle uh, said that there was a council that foreordained the events that were taking place. A council. I know what a city council is. You know what a city council is. He called it the determinant council, the determining council, 
Well, who would sit on such a council in eternity? Well, the only three people that existed, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, they devised a plan of what they would create, what would happen, and what would have to be done to save us, okay? Uh, Christ was the one either selected or he volunteered first. I don't know how it worked, but uh, he was the one that the Godhead decided would come into the world uh, and would rule over the kingdom of God for a definite period of time. God knew when the world would end. And this is where it gets a little bit fuzzy for some people. And I can understand why. It's kind of fuzzy. Uh, we don't understand God, okay? I mean, give it your best shot. You should. But you're going to come up short in understanding God. I, I promise you, you'll not see God as he is. You'll never comprehend him. He's too, too big for us to comprehend. We can understand some of the characteristics of God, uh, but the abilities of God goes far beyond our ability to understand. Uh, for example, the Lord can see the end from the beginning. And yet, other than appointing, say, uh, Jesus, th there has to be a resurrection, uh, the death, there has to be uh, the burial, there has to be uh, uh, the resurrection after the crucifixion, rather. Uh, all these things had to take place. But God knew what every single person was going to do. Before God created the heavens and the earth, he knew what every single person was going to do. He predestined none of their actions, none of their actions. He knew what people were going to do. And he knew when the end of time would come. Jesus must reign until the day of the judgment. He must reign. And that's what Paul's saying here. He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, which he shall in the day of judgment. And the last enemy that he will destroy is death. There'll be no more death. Death is uh, a thing of the past. It only existed when we live in our immortal bodies. Uh, we're going to live in, in eternal bodies when we are resurrected, whether good or bad, whether going to heaven or hell, it makes no difference going to be raised into an indestructible body, death is gone. No such thing. It's never going to happen again. And if you talk about death in the sense of being separated, uh, when, we, when we all get to heaven, there's not going to be what we would call a figurative death, where we are separated from people we love. That's not going to happen. It can happen right now. We, people that we love very dearly, we can be figuratively separated from them. A type of death can occur because uh, for ex I may become uh, unfaithful to the Lord. Uh, hence, I'd be unfaithful to you all. Uh, I wouldn't be here now. Our relationship as the children of God would be severed. We would be separated. We would experience some type of a death. That won't never happen in heaven. Once we get to heaven, 
we're never going to be separated again. It's just not going to happen. There's, there's not going to be temptation. There's not going to be sin. We'll be free from all such things. Death is going to be destroyed when Jesus uh, comes in the day of the judgment. Life as we know it is not going to continue. It's going to be very different. We're going to be the same people. We're going to know what we know. We're going to know who we know. Uh, people talk about the ones we know that didn't make it to heaven. I don't know how that's going to be handled. I got no idea. I mean, I can theorize, which is worth about less than a cup of coffee. Uh, well, less than a $3 and a half cup of coffee. Uh, less than anything I got, I guess. Uh, my, it's my opinion, and it means absolutely zero. Um, I just don't know uh, such a thing. But I do know this. There are no tears in heaven. There is no sorrow in heaven. That's a promise from God. That's, that's being, that's in the bank. Uh, it's not going to happen. How does God handle it? I don't know. I really don't know. That's why I'm saying God's bigger than we are so far. I have no idea how such a thing can be handled. But God can do it because he is God. Uh, but the, what's, what's good to know is that once we get to heaven, there's no more separation. We don't have to say goodbye. We don't have to watch people die. We don't have to be sad uh, because such things aren't going to be. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, uh, God, through Daniel the prophet, said, in the days of these kings, he's talking, of course, about the Roman kings. Daniel talks about four kingdoms in chapter 2. Uh, the fourth kingdom was going to be the Roman kings. And he's prophesying in the days of these kings, the God of heaven who is in control of bringing these things to pass, he is going to set up a kingdom in the days of these kings, the Roman kings, God is going to set up a kingdom. Now, if that's true, man, it's true. That means we are in the kingdom. We're not looking for the kingdom to come. We're not looking for a kingdom age or, or a millennial age. We're living in it right now. Well, how do you explain the thousand years? It's already been 2,000 years. I don't have to explain it. It's in the book of Revelation. It's a figurative number. It's not a precise 1,000 number. What does number 1,000 mean to the Jewish mind? It means for a distinct, very long period of time. The kingdom is going to exist uh, in this planet. The Lord will set up his kingdom during the days of the Roman kings, which took place a long time ago, uh, and that kingdom is never going to be destroyed. Uh, the kingdom came long ago. It didn't leave. It's still here. But everything in the scriptures teaches us that the kingdom came. From that time, Jesus began to preach to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at hand. My hand is close to me. 
It's not far off. The kingdom is at hand. In Matthew 4, 23, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Why would he preach the gospel of the kingdom 2,000 years ago if the kingdom hasn't even gotten here yet? Why even talk about that? That makes no sense at all. He preached the gospel, the good news, of the kingdom. It, it was, uh, it was uh, proclaimed in the kingdom when the kingdom was established. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then surely you must admit that the kingdom of God has come upon you. They're saying that he's uh, doing what he does by the power of the prince of the devils. They're not denying the fact that he's working miracles. They were undeniable. But they're saying that he's powered by the prince of the devils. And, of course, Jesus put that argument to rest. If, if, if I work for Satan and I'm destroying the things of Kate, Satan, how's the kingdom of Satan going to survive? It can't survive. A kingdom divided against itself is surely doomed to death. Okay? Now, what you've seen, what you know, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, which is the only rational conclusion, you must admit it's more than obvious that the kingdom of God has come upon you in the presence of the person of Jesus. Jesus was representative of the kingdom. It was, uh, it was within him and would be established by him. Matthew 16 and 18, I also say to you that you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Why would he say, I'm building my church, but I'm going to give you the keys to a kingdom? Well, that makes no sense at all. It's irrational. What good's the keys to the kingdom going to do the apostles if the kingdom hasn't even arrived yet? Why, that's silly to think of something. You know what bothers me so much about all this nonsense is that most Protestant denominations, you're talking about millions of people, they believe this is the way things are going to occur. They believe they're living in the church age and that one day, someday, down the road, the kingdom's going to come and be established. Everything in Scripture teaches that we are in the kingdom. The words church and kingdom are used synonymously. I'm going to build my church and I'm going to give you the keys to my church. That's what he's saying except he says the kingdom. That's the only difference. He's going to unlock a kingdom on earth. It's not going to be Israel any longer. It's going to be a new kingdom. It's going to be his kingdom. <clears throat> and this kingdom, he said, shall never be destroyed. Uh, it will forever exist. It exists here. It shall exist in eternity. Why? Because we're going to be there. And we are the kingdom. Wherever we are, the kingdom is. So it'll be in heaven as well. It'll never come to an end. Every kingdom on earth, they only last so long. Uh, at the rate we're going, it doesn't look too good for us uh, in these United States unless something happens dramatically. But uh, right now, things just don't look that great. 
but it's not unusual. Only in our minds it's unusual. Historically speaking, kingdoms, they, they, they go up and they come down. And uh, down is always with a crash. Somebody else takes over as the world superpower. Uh, this kingdom, however, it'll never come to an end like earthly kingdoms do. <clears throat> and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. This always happened. Uh, if China uh, somehow gets control of our, go our government uh, and we come, become subservient to the Chinese, uh, the communist Chinese, uh, they will be, the government of the United States will be left to say a Chinese government or a Russian government or whatever it may be. But it's going to be turned over to other people, not the kingdom of God. It'll never be headed by anyone other than Jesus Christ. Uh, it's, it's his kingdom, and it forever shall be his kingdom. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. In the immediate kingdom uh, context, rather, he's talking about four kingdoms. He's talking about uh, the uh, uh, Babylonian kingdom. Then he talks about the, the Persian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom. Then he talks about the Greek kingdom. And then he talks about the Roman kingdom. There's a sense in, when, in which the first three, uh, Babylon, the Persians, and the Greek, there's a sense in which they all exist in the Roman government. Uh, because certain aspects of each government became a part of the Roman government. Uh, Rome basically took over what they previously held. So there's a sense in which all four kingdoms are rolled up in one uh, in the Roman kingdom. Uh, the kingdom of God will break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it did. When the Roman kingdom came to an end, uh, the Church of Christ survived. The kingdom of God remained on earth. The kingdom of the Roman kings, the Grecian kings, the Persian kings, the Babylonian kings, they were smashed into pieces all in one. That's in uh, figurative terminology in both the book of Daniel and the Apocalypse. Uh, so uh, that would be the immediate context. The broader context, it would be all kingdoms of the earth. No matter what they are, they're going to be destroyed, and only the kingdom of God will survive. <clears throat> Paul and Daniel, they're only saying a little, but they're saying a whole lot. Uh, if you study uh, the contextual uh, meaning of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, you're going to be traveling all over the Bible because it is that large. But uh, these are the things that are going to take place. This is why the kingdom isn't yet to come. It's here. We're in it. We're not waiting for it. Uh, and we need to help our friends understand because they've been duped uh, by uh, false teachers. I don't know how else to say it other than false teachers. And it, the kingdom of God, will stand forever. Any questions? This, uh, what we just talked about in a nutshell, 
this can be studied in a broad context in a Bible class uh, over what a 13-week period, easy. Uh, and it's a really interesting study. Maybe uh, maybe Chris will hit up on a class like that one day. Uh, we'll see. Okay, for he has put all things under his feet. He, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Okay, for he, that's the Godhead, okay? That's God. For God has put all things under his feet. That's Jesus. God put all authority and power under his feet. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus said, all authority and power in heaven and earth have been delivered unto me. Okay, God has put all things under Jesus' feet. But when he says all things are put under him, when Godhead says all things are put under him, that is Jesus, it is evidence that the Godhead is accepted. Okay, in Matthew 28, 18, when Jesus said, all power and authority has been given to me on heaven and earth, that would be all power and authority that exists except for the Godhead. The Father and the Holy Spirit were not put in subjection to the Son. They're uh, equal. They're all three equal. So Paul is simply saying when he said everything, he didn't mean the Godhead. Okay? Uh, he's, he's very precise in what he's discussing here. And him, of course, would be Jesus. Now, when all things are made subject to him, everything other than the Godhead, <clears throat> then the Son himself will be subject to him, that is, the Godhead. When all things are made subject to the Godhead, that's at the end of time, then the Son himself will all be, also be subject to the Godhead. Uh, uh, Carl and Sean and me, we're all three elders, okay? The three of us can make a decision, and, and we're all bound to it. Uh, that doesn't mean that I'm not bound to it because I'm an elder. Even though I'm an elder, I'm bound to the decision of the eldership. As an elder, one person, I have no special authority or power. The power only resides in the eldership, the three. I can't make decisions that affect the church by myself. And whatever decisions the three of us make, whether I disagree with them, okay, let's say I disagree with them, and Sean and Carl want to do thus and so, Whenever that decision has been made and I was in disagreement, when we come out and go about our lives, I am in subjection to their decision even though I was against it. I still have to do my very best to help the church here be, be all she can be. Okay? Well, Jesus is going to be subject to the Godhead but he was always subject to the Godhead. The Father is subject to the Godhead. The Spirit is subject to the Godhead. The Godhead is the governing entity. 
Jesus was given special authority and power over everything in heaven and on earth with the exception of the Godhead. And the Godhead made that decision. Do you understand? The operation was the same as what I just said about me and Sean and Carl. Uh, it was the same. So when Jesus is said to be in subjection to him, he's not in subjection to, let's say, the Father in heaven. He's in, he is uh, in subjection to the Godhead as he has been throughout eternity. The difference is this. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit never disagree. Jesus is the express image of the Father. You could take a stamp, and whatever that stamp has on it, you can strike it against a piece of paper, and the image on the piece of paper is going to be the exact likeness of the image you hold in your hand. There's no difference. There's no distinction. It's the exact same thing. And that's the way the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are. They are the express image of each other. There's no disagreements. Now, me and Sean and Carl, we disagree sometimes. That's being human. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they never disagree. And that's the difference between us. We want to understand that the, the language sometimes can be confusing uh, as though the, the son is under the father like this. It, it doesn't work that way. He's in subjection to the Godhead as he forever was. Uh, that is him who put all things under him, uh, under Jesus, uh, Matthew 28, 18. Uh, the Godhead gave him all power and the Godhead taketh all power because the power belongs to the Godhead which includes Jesus of course and it's, it's, it's the terminology that's fuzzy what took place shouldn't be too fuzzy uh, he would be subject to him uh, that God that would be along with Jesus may be all in all the Father, Son, Holy Spirit God sometimes uh, is used oh boy I don't want to get into all this stuff. Uh, God is a name of the Godhead. Man is the name of the human family. I know sometimes women have gotten upset because it appears that man is put on this very high level because man does this and man does that. Man is simply a, a term that designates the human family in some context. A lot of contexts, matter of fact. Sometimes man is used of an individual man. And sometimes the word man means the entire human family. Just like the word God means the entire human family. You can speak of God in speaking of the Father, or you can speak, say God in speaking of the Godhead. It's a name that's given 
to those who possess the characteristics of the Godhead. Okay? Man is a term that's given to those who possess the characteristics of a human being. In other words, we're not dogs. Dogs are something different. Why? They don't possess the characteristics of a human being. To be considered a part of man, this entity that's called man, you have to uh, possess certain qualities and characteristics. Dogs don't qualify, horses don't qualify, cows don't qualify. You speak of man in the general sense, you're speaking of the human family. And the same thing is true about deity. Deity possesses certain qualities, certain characteristics. And anyone who possesses those qualities and characteristics is a part of what we call deity or God. Now, there's only three persons that possess these qualities and characteristics. That is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I can be considered man. Rita can be considered man in the general sense. Jesus can be called God. The Father can be called God or the Holy Spirit can be called because all three of them possess the qualities that determines deity. I've been caught off guard here. I don't know if I'm going to dig a hole I can't get back out of. So I'm going to let her go there. Is that understandable? Somebody tell me yes. I'm going to, I'm going to jump ship. <laughs> That would be the same thing. Yes. It's just in the Bible, just the word man appears. Uh, usually when I'm teaching, I'll say mankind or humankind or something like that, uh, kind of clarifying man because it's a very sensitive word with people. Uh, but I don't know how proportionately it plays out, but I, I do know when the word man is used in scriptures, it's a lot. I don't know if it's 20% of the time, 50% of the time, I don't know. But a lot of times when you read the word man, it's talking about all of us, male or female. In spirit, we're man, we're all man, we're all the same. There's no difference. The only thing that makes us different is human features, uh, a body. That's the only thing that makes us different. But take away the body, which is just a vessel to hold the spirit, the person, take away the body, and we're all identical. I, we got different personalities, but we're all the same. There's no hierarchy. And that's what he's talking about when he says he'll put all power and authority to rest. Not only his power and authority as the king of kings and lord of lords, he's going to put to rest any kind of distinction between people, spirit people. The only thing that makes us different is a body. 
I don't. I think. I think if if everybody understood that, I, I I don't think it would be so hard to accept. Because there's nothing ugly about it. There's no nothing demeaning that I see. Uh, personally, I think women should be appreciative of the Christian system because if the husband is what he's supposed to be, he's going to sacrifice himself for that woman. Now, if he's not what he's supposed to be, I'm sorry. But if he is what he's supposed to be, he's going to sacrifice himself for his wife. She comes first. She sits on the throne. She's the queen of the kingdom, their kingdom. She's the one everybody looks up to, even the husband. I know that's the way it is in my house. I mean, I, I don't worry about it. BR, you know, she's the nucleus. Now, I'm not saying I'm useless. I'm very important because I bring the authority into the, into the picture more so than she does. But she's got that glue. And I know it. I know there's a difference. Uh, you know, even I look to her. She, she's always uh, keeping up with what I'm supposed to do. Uh, I, I, I don't. <laughs> and she does that for me. Anyway, uh, my BR is my all in all. And that's the way it's supposed to be. I know it's not always that way, and I'm sorry, but that's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, we'll have to stop right here, see if I can dig another hole next Sunday to get into. Uh, we'll start uh, somewhere around here next week.